Wilderness is harder for me to say now that my teeth are removed. Just just fair warning. I don't know why. You can say it however you want to. Yeah, but can I? <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Haj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. And greetings to everyone, uh, especially those who are trying something new, listening to us for the first time. We would like to make a formal apology for anyone who listened to an early episode that was released last week and heard a little bit of the uh, unfiltered banter that Ben and I have <laughs> yeah. before each episode. So what happened was we had an episode go out a day early and it was unedited at the beginning. So before the episodes, Sammy and I kind of gather our notes together or do some last minute research. So there was about three or four minutes of pretty boring talk about the cross. <laughs> cro- what, what was it? Corolla Cross. Corolla Cross. Get this so quickly. Corolla Cross. It's the only way I can survive is just forget and move on. Uh, the Corolla Cross and the CHR, particularly sales uh, statistics and where it was built. And then it just abruptly cut into the episode. So uh, that was all my fault. It's 100% my fault. I do the audio editing on this side and I got the dates wrong on the launch. And because I got the dates wrong, the final file was not uploaded. It was also a much larger file than normal. I don't know why. It was uh, – anyway – Welcome to behind the scenes of the automotive, uh, the unnamed I, automotive. Podcast. I felt unprofessional and I felt stupid. So if anyone was, you know, scandalized by what they heard or got a glimpse into just how disorganized we sometimes seem when we're not actually and, and didn't unsubscribe and are listening to our episode now, yeah, we apologize. we apologize. Sorry about that. It won't happen again. I will say this: we've been doing this for five years. I think this is episode 270, or we're very close to episode 270, and we do yeah. it almost every week. So uh, we, we this is the only time this has happened. So it, it probably won't happen again. No. Question mark? <laughs> I love – my favorite thing is that we have to make a whole new protocol for this one mistake, I think. <laughs> yes. Stampy and I no longer talk to each other before the podcast. It, we, yep. we just stare at our screens silently, <laughs> and then one of us hits record, and then we, just, we, we go on like nothing's wrong. But everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. Um, that is the voice of my friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Ben, can you tell them where they can find your work? Sure. You can find my work at Motor Trend, in the pages of Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at um, autotrader.ca, driving.ca, Nouveau Magazine, and TechSpot. Let's talk about some cars. Let's stop talking about last week's episode because that was the Corolla Cross and the CHR. That's boring. We've got some slightly wow, more interesting wow. crossovers. That's a lot of shade about. to just throw on last week's episode, which has already been through so much. <laughs> it has been so It was also our most popular episode of the, of the month. So. We, also, we also want to say thank you, though, uh, first, before we get started, to two oh, yeah, of, our, of our recent Ko-Fi um, supporters. Sammy, take it away. Yes, I'd like to thank um, Rob and... Rob and Scott for uh, contributing to our Ko-Fi. Uh, we really appreciate the support. It and keeps the lights on, that's for sure. Yeah, otherwise we do the podcast in complete darkness. And, uh, you know, I haven't admitted this. I haven't admitted this to anyone but my wife, but I am deathly afraid of p- the pure darkness. Sammy has a what he calls his shame shack, which is where he uh, podcasts from. And uh, if he doesn't see his body, he has a lot more confidence when he speaks. That's so- right. So we're weaning him away from that by, you know, keeping the lights on. Yeah, so thank you guys, uh, and thank you for visiting the Ko-Fi. It is ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast. Let's get into some cars. Enough with all this uh, preamble. We want to talk about what we've been driving recently. I have been driving a familiar nameplate. It is the Subaru Forester Wilderness 
or wilderness, however you want to describe it. Now, we have uh, a storied tradition here on the podcast of mispronouncing the Wilderness brand name. I and just think it's more exciting. It. I mean, why wouldn't Subaru go with Wilderness? It's so much more aggressive and controversial. It gets people going. No one, <laughs> yeah. no one knows what it means, Sammy. That's right. I think we're tr- we're starting to get an idea of um, what it means. It means a lot more, um, much more body cladding. It means uh, an exclusive paint scheme. Um, it means a higher ground clearance and some skid plates, and that's uh, that's pretty much the gist of it. Well, now, that you higher might remember- ground clearance, Sammy, that comes as a result of its tires, I believe. I think so. I think I you would- get extra sidewall, and that kind of gives you a little more ground clearance. Well, what tires are on that vehicle? Those are Geo, uh, sorry, Geolanders, Yokohama Geolanders. Okay, so it's like the most aggressive crossover tire you can get. I think that I think the Rav Four TRD has uh, TRD Offroad has something that's as aggressive uh there i don't know what's on the mazda cx50 uh i haven't checked those tires out but that's all this family of like crossovers that you might think about one day taking off road so you can get stuck really far from home and have to walk back to the trailhead so i mean there's also the trail hawk versions of the jeeps i think the cherokee or the the compass but i think that the the trailhawk version of at least the cherokee is another beast entirely because i believe that right. has a low range four wheel drive system yes and this doesn't there's also the bronco sport uh, and whatever their that trim level is called that's a good know. point that's a good point that's definitely in the family so this is this thing it bugs me I, I i've said this in previous episode it, it bugs me that subaru has to fight harder for its own brand sort of um, image. I yeah, because this Subaru- used to be the default, right? Like when you thought <laughs> right? Subaru, you thought, okay, I can kind of go off road with it. But now it's like, wait a minute, do I need the wilderness to go off road, or can I just take the normal Forester slash Outback off road? Right, and we have talked about this uh, trim level before in the Outback. Um, I said that it is. It, it reminded me of, an, of older Outbacks. I th- I found it to be um, soft on the road, a little bit wobbly. It was extremely loud. Um, and it wasn't that much better. It was actually wor- much worse on gas due to those due to the tires that it uses. But I found the whole thing kind of quirky and fun. The Forester um, I- iteration of the Wilderness here, and I'm imagining that they're going to do this across the whole lineup of Subarus now. Like now that we've seen it on two, I can see this coming on everything but the sedan. So you're or, saying or like an cars, Ascent right? Wilderness, kind of like the Explorer Timberline? I think so. But at the same time, the Ascent. Kind of, kind of worries me in the in the Subaru portfolio, right? Like, they should have been, they should be really pushing and promoting and changing and like making this thing uh, stand out in its in terms of its in terms of what it offers, which is usually um, you know simple three rows and that standard all wheel drive, very efficient all wheel drive system. And they're really not doing anything since it came out, I think, in like 2016 or 2018 or something. So, do you think that it's? Are you worried it's going to be another Tribeca? I don't think there's any danger of that. Do you, no, do you it's think a little a bit reason? more successful than the Tribeca right from the get-go, I think. Yeah, like of... why is it being ignored, though? What's, what's your theory? What's my theory? Yeah. I think they don't know what to do. I think the market went uh, – as soon as they launched the, the Ascent, that market went upscale. Like, I think that's Oh, the that's a problem. really interesting point. Um, we, we, everyone – I mean it was like – there was a week or two, well, maybe not. It felt like a year where the where the ascent was like almost on par with with like the Toyota Highlander, and then the Palisade and Telluride came out, and then the new Pathfinder happened, and we got a little bit more upscale with our 
with our three-row vehicles. So you're saying that Subaru's next move isn't going to be a wilderness ascent. It's going to be an ascent deluxe or something. Oh, like I don't know. I, I'm not saying that. I can I can imagine that um, as well as I can, but I don't know what Subaru's really. I think it is. Like I said, I think it's so weird that Subaru is trying to protect its brand image with these trim models. It seems like people have forgotten that this model, this automaker used to make standard all-wheel drives, used to promote their vehicles from bounding in the mud and snow and salt and, I mean, mud and snow and sand, and now they have to do that again with a new trim level, and I don't know if that's necessary. It is kind of unusual because we also saw the new WRX that has come out on what is arguably a crossover platform, right? Right. So that kind of seems to indicate that they're going tougher. Uh, but when I look at vehicles like the Crosstrek, uh, is there a Crosstrek mo- Are we going to see a Wilderness Crosstrek? Or isn't there already a sort of tougher version of the Crosstrek that's available? No, I think, I think for right now, I think the, the Crosstrek will get the Wilderness uh, um, treatment. And that's where I think, it'll you stop. A, I think you can get a Sport version, which is the 2.5 liter engine. Yeah. Um, and then if you go to back to the Forester that I was t- testing, that's available as both a Sport model with these funky orange highlights, as well as this Wilderness version. The Outback doesn't seem to have the same range. I think they have a blacked-out Onyx edition as well um, as the Wilderness version or Wilderness, and that's it. And then the Ascent, as we mentioned, doesn't really have any of that special, you know, trim or, you know, I don't know, imagery going for it. It's just a basic three-row now. I think that what we saw when the new Outback came out was a decision by Subaru to focus its luxury aspirations on that model. Yeah. And uh, we that that kind of manifested in pulling back from the Forester because we lost – you say there's a sport model, but you and I both know – that there's oh, nothing. Yeah. yeah, it's sport in it, Orange only. highlights. That's all it has. But, it looks like a, a sneaker, right? But we, there used to be an XT model of the yeah. Forester that was fast and turbocharged. And now you can only really get that from the, the Outback. So the yeah. Forester, it, it kind of seems like they're making it the value proposition for people who need something large in the cross track, but don't necessarily, aren't necessarily into the um, Outback styling. Yeah. I think it, the the Forester has suddenly become this really cool, not cool, but this really important player in the in the segment, and I feel like it's actually carrying, like spiritually, the essence of Subaru now because it is available in so many different trim levels. The only problem I have with the Forester right now is performance, and this still continues with both the Sport model and the uh, Wilderness that I've got. Um, not very fast, man. This has a 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine, made it to a CVT that sends power to all four wheels, 180, I don't know, 2 or 87 horsepower. Yeah. It is slow, man. Like, it, 182. It think is ab- slow. Think about how many other options are available with really quick turbocharged engines at exactly the same price point and size uh, footprint of the Forester. And that kind of really puts it in perspective. I also want to correct myself earlier. I mentioned that the ground clearance was entirely due to tires. Subaru is claiming there is a raised suspension. So it goes to 9.2 inches. I believe the standard Forester is 8.7 or something around yes. there. So it's a half an inch. My understanding is now this makes it the the most ground clearance in the segment. It was previously outdone by the Bronco Sport. So this is their chance to be like, oh, no, we're, we're taller now. We're the tallest now. Um, or maybe not the Bronco Sport. Yes, the Bronco Sport and the, Jer- and the Cherokee Trailhawk. Okay. Okay, we got this. I'm I'm doing okay here. Nice. Um, the if you are actually going off roading with this thing, um, I think it's it's going to be 
pretty capable so long as you don't need to go anywhere very with with a lot of momentum or or speed. Um, you're going to be okay with that. Yeah, we don't have to ford too much water. Yeah, and um, I think those tires are are actually pretty good. My biggest concerns about driving this vehicle, as I mentioned, powertrain, um, fuel efficiency has suffered tremendously in my experience. Um, I think we're down to like 23-ish miles per gallon or something like that, which is not good. Like that is just not great here. Um, yeah, and uh, and noise. The tire noise, obviously, and wind noise are, are impacted severely here. So- now – let me tell you a little bit more about what makes the the wilderness or the wilderness so so special as opposed with more than just the the skid plates the ground clearance the funny colors um the roof rack has gotten i don't know additional like they say it can support 800 pounds now um so that's for that's for camping like we talked about with the outback did we mention that with the Outback? Yeah, I think we were talking about how, you know, the reason you would want a strong roof rack is because the whole overlanding craze oh, yeah. and people wanting to camp up top and put a, t- a, tra- a tent up there. Thank you for that previously on uh, reminder <laughs> there. I like that. <laughs> previously on the Unnamed Automotive Podcast, Ben and Sammy said something about the Outback. It's not just random unedited audio <laughs> before a dramatic cut into the introduction of yet another episode. Um, inside the vehicle, there are a bunch of these wilderness, um, badges on the headrests and, like, the floor mats, and the materials for the seats and, uh, and those, those, those floor mats are changed to, like, this rubberized, really easily washable, um, material. Um, that's cool, I guess, and you're going to, you're going to not find anything more adventurous than that in this, in this car. I, I, I'm... I'm worried that it's it's going to come off as desperate from Subaru, but I think it is effective in what it does. Um, from what I've seen, it is very capable off-road. Um, it feels very confident. It's got this two-mode, X-mode um, system. So if you're in deep snow or just light stuff, it has a different setting for the traction control Wait, and what the do you mean all-wheel by, drive system. What do you mean by desperate, exactly? Like I said, it, it just seems like they're really trying to protect their image of being off-road oriented when I think that was, this def- like you said, the default for Subaru in the past. But I think like, we, we can't fault them for that because a lot of the time when a company kind of rests on its laurels and the market moves in a different direction and they don't make changes, we kind of we – kind of, um, we get on their case for that. Like I think Volvo is a perfect example. Remember when Volvo was all about safety? Yeah, and but then, now everyone is about safety. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But at, for a while, Volvo kind of tried to stay on the safety kick. They talked a lot about uh, pilot assist or whatever it's called. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It's so many different names for these systems. Mm-hmm. But it, it was really clear that there wasn't anything particularly special about what Volvo was doing. So they kind of took that in stride and moved into the luxury segment, and they've done very well there. So if Subaru took a look around, saw which way the wind was blowing, was like, we're just another SUV maker now. We do yep. need to play the the game of special editions, and they actually did it. You know, back in the 90s, when they came out with the Outback, it was a way for them to differentiate themselves. And it was – other Subarus weren't considered off-roady or, or rugged right. or anything. You know, they, I thought it was their, their most affordable way to make an SUV to compete. Right. Yes and no. I mean, they also made a sedan version, and they made the little the the, the standard uh, Impreza wagon also had a version as well. Right. Uh, the Outback Sport, but it, it was a way for them to to kind of tap into this outdoorsy aspect of their character that we now take for granted. But at the time, like if you go to the '80s, late '80s, early '90s, and ask someone if Subaru was associated with outdoorsy 
um, fun wilderness camping, all that kind of stuff. No one would have made that connection. They had a right. rally reputation that they were building at the time, but that's something very different from the Outback. So I think that that they're doing this to kind of solidify their reputation is not necessarily something that we should get on their get on their case about. And I want to bring up that rallying reputation that you 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 briefly mentioned. Has this disappeared from Subaru now? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, Subaru pulled out of WRC a long time ago. Yeah. They kind of got involved with um, Global Rallycross or World Rallycross or whatever. Global Rallycross, sorry. Uh, It's – they're a small company without a lot of money. It makes it hard to make an impact in motorsports. It's pretty pretty basic math. Do you think they should go – Baja or Mint with the the Outback or the Forester Wilderness? Absolutely not. I don't think that's their customer at all. (laughs) I think they should climb Mount Washington. (laughs) Yeah, Pike Pike Peak, man. Maybe. I mean, it worked for Suzuki, right? (laughs) You look at them now. (laughs) Um, There was also one more uh, bump for the the Forester that I forgot to mention. I think the towing has been improved to 3,000 pounds. Improved from from what? What was it? I think it was like 2,500 perhaps. Is that across the board for the Forester, or is that just for Wilderness? Let me double-check for you here. Um, so if I wanted to tow a little camp trailer... That's oh, no, of... man. It was... Across the board, it was 1,500. Oh, the wow. Wilderness is double that. <laughs> okay. I would love to know why. I'm going to assume cooling, but that's the only yeah. thing I can think of. So, yeah, that is among the uh, among the, the other additions to the Wilderness um, package. They do have, like, a rear diff cooler, I believe. I mean, CVTs do not like to tow. If there is That's a universe, right. if there is a universal truth, that is one. Yeah, um, and I don't know. It's like I'm okay with this, but I'm also like I kind of just wish the Forester got a powertrain update. I, it seems like Subaru is always a little slow with the powertrain updates, but the rest of the pro- the rest of the product is 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 good enough. I mean, we um, waited so long for the Crosstrek to get a powertrain update, and then when it got one, it was like. It, it kind of just – It was just the Forester engine. Yeah, it was just putting it back on a level playing field. It wasn't It wasn't exciting. You know, It was just like, okay, now it's sufficient again. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love the Crosstrek so much and yet it's hard to recommend to people because of how dog slow it is with the CVT. <laughs> I mean with the so, manual, it's not so I've bad. Been, I've been thinking of buying um, a, a modern manual out, uh, Crosstrek to replace my Outback and I keep thinking about how much slower that that vehicle is. Even with the manual, compared to to a, a two point five liter in an Outback, it's I'm just, just like, yeah, it's just no, unpleasant. This might not be worth it. Yeah. This will be more frustrating than than it's worth. And and the real reason why, I mean, one of the main reasons, in my opinion, why Subaru is so slow on the on the um, updates with the drivetrain is that they have to worry about fuel efficiency. And the fact yeah. of the matter is, standard all-wheel drive makes their vehicles heavier than their competitors. Mm-hmm. And it means that they can't... I mean, also the inefficiencies associated with an all-wheel drive system. It means mm-hmm. that they cannot just put a turbo engine in there and hope for the best. Like, that's why we have these CVTs doing right. their utmost to keep uh, the, the MPGs up. And uh, when you get a manual, there's a stark difference in fuel mileage between a manual and a CVT and a Crosstrek and an Impreza and across the board. Right. Actually, this is worth talking about um, in terms of fuel efficiency. As I mentioned, the fuel efficiency has not gone uh, has has gone down in this vehicle. And one of the one of the features in quotations I'll put in about sa- uh, saving gas in this vehicle is a start stop system, which is extremely um, unrefined. It shakes the entire car oh, man. Uh, when it fire when it fires back up. That's disappointing. It is extremely disappointing. And I mean, we've seen other automakers with all wheel drive systems 
try to figure out how to um, accommodate improved fuel efficiency with like a driveline disconnect or something like that. Or even um, just a system that's like a slip and grip, which Subaru doesn't do as much of. So right. they're, they're more continuous uh, in terms of their power delivery. So that's working against them as well. Although that exactly. newer systems are less like that. They still you. I, it seems like they still run all four wheels at all times. So uh, other ones can like yeah disconnect or need fire it off to that rear axle as needed, and that's really to the detriment of, of their fuel efficiency. So we'll see what they do in the future. As we mentioned a little while ago, they say that they're just not going to develop new STI because of the impending uh, fuel efficiency mandates or electric vehicle mandates that are coming down. They, there's no point for them to invest there so clearly it's, it's the automaker so is to, but it's so sad to hear that because it's like everyone else who makes performance cars is still making performance cars and subaru is like we can't afford to do it and this is how we're saying it you know until they well i mean look they've got they've got a good partner in i don't know about a good partner they've got a partner in toyota who's helped them make a sports car and an electric vehicle uh just put the two things together and see what happens like, <laughs> i think that'll work um but you have a vehicle that that attempts to tackle the off-roady, I think off-roady, uh, but at least like mid-size SUV segment and fuel efficiency problem at the same time. Sorry, say that again. I completely spaced out. <laughs> I said you have the new Sorento plug-in hybrid. Oh yes, I do. <laughs> so yeah, I spent a lot of time in the Sorento plug-in hybrid. I've been, I've been. Doing a lot of road trips lately. I don't know why. Uh, just that time of year, I guess. It's nicer and there's less snow. And um, The Sorento is you a... bloom, ve- eh? You bloom. That's what happens. Yeah, you, it's... The, when the, the snow disappears, the you just The sun hits out, my yeah. pedals and I open up and it's just wonderful. But the Sorento is a vehicle that I've liked in the past. This is my first time driving the latest generation. I believe it's new for this year or last year. Um, I don't think I've driven it before. I find there are good things and bad things about it. Something I've noticed about the Sorento is it's kind of genericized itself. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed that. Like, it just... I actually really like the new... The new the, well, in terms of what? In terms of interior, In terms exterior, of styling, packaging? I think styling. when I look at it now, it doesn't feel as individual as it once did. It's it looks clear- like an Outback, man. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I think it, it looks like an Outback. It, it looks like maybe an Outback, but I think more like a Telluride slash... Uh, what's the minivan that I like so much? Carnival. Yeah, the Carnival. I really see those elements <clears throat> in in the design. Inside, uh-huh. it's pretty nice. Uh, like now you had a tr- you had a, h- a high trim level, right? Yeah, I, I reasonably high trim level. I think it was the SX Premium. I think okay. is what it's called. The, yeah. the, the, so in the US, <clears throat> Kia has been uh, pretty smart about how they've set up the trim levels for the hybrid and the plug-in hybrid. So the hybrid is only available in the entry level and mid-tier trim. And then the plug-in is only available in the top and the very top trim. Like, you can't get lower or higher versions of either. So if you want luxury, you have to go plug-in. If you want value, you have to go hybrid. Uh, In terms of what you're getting with the plug-in versus the hybrid, you get 32 miles of battery-only operation. And I found that to be pretty accurate. Uh, When it was cold, there were a couple couple days where it was around zero, just above zero. And when I say zero, I mean for American listeners, just above freezing. Uh, I saw a little bit of a mileage drop. But in regular weather, it would sometimes do better on the battery than I thought it would because it's pretty good at regenerative braking. Even when it's telling you that it has zero... So you never drop totally to zero, right? Because it's a hybrid. It still keeps right. a little bit in reserve for hybrid stuff. But you don't necessarily get 
any more battery only range when the battery is is at its quote unquote lowest point. But there were times where the battery was registering as 0% full or like 0 to 14%, which is where you have a zero, a zero mile range. And it would still regenerate and give me like another 5 6% going down a hill. And then it would let me drive around on battery, even though it said I couldn't. So it was in that way, very aggressive about using the battery. But in another weird way, it was also aggressive about turning the engine on, even when I had the vehicle set to EV only mode, Sammy. Okay, so, I mean... We we have been seeing better weather, and that usually um, usually one of the main reasons a, a, a gas engine will fire up again is because of of conditions, either temperature conditions or something like that. Yeah, so that's entirely what was happening here. I would sometimes be sitting at a stoplight, and the engine would just turn on, <laughs> which is the opposite of what we've come to expect from start stop systems, especially from an EV. But it, the the weird thing is when you almost every EV out there, plug in electric vehicle, I should say. It starts off in EV mode. When you turn the vehicle on, it stays in EV mode. Not yeah. so the Sorento. The Sorento starts off in automatic mode, which is its way of balancing the gas engine and the battery. And then if you want to get to EV mode, you have to cycle through hybrid mode before you get to EV mode. So even with the button stuck in EV mode, there were a lot of times where cruising around town, the gas engine came on. And I found that super weird. Like I just... I don't understand why they're not confident enough to just let me use up all the battery I want and then switch to a hybrid. That is strange. Um, was it throttle tip-in that was really sending it off too? Like, like I that said, make sitting at a stoplight. Weird. And having it happen. So it was unpredictable. Um, mm-hmm. Something else that's nice though about the hybrid system in this vehicle, the it, it, it generates a little bit more horsepower than the uh, hybrid alone. So I'm trying to find the exact numbers here. But it is uh, – the, the electric motor itself is 90 horsepower. And yeah. all I think together the total system horsepower is something like 261 horses and 251 pound-feet of torque. I right. Think I, wanted a- to, I wanted to talk to you about this. Sorry. I, I, I want to just talk to you before before you jump into this. We know the 1.6 liter turbo that that Kia Hyundai has. It's a known commodity. We we know it. I don't know if I feel comfortable with it being in a vehicle as big as this. So, how do the two powertrains kind of mesh and meld and make the vehicle go? Well, the 90 the 90 horsepower electric motor, I don't have a torque figure for it, unfortunately. That's okay. It, it didn't have a problem driving around on the electric motor. I never really felt like cool. it was too slow. The battery system itself, the battery is only I think 220 pounds or so. Uh, of additional weight, which when you compare it to the battery inside um, the the Grand Cherokee, uh, what's it called? The hybrid version of the Grand Cherokee. They also make a Wrangler. They, four, four by four E. By e yep. Which is significantly heavier. I mean, all told, the hybrid drivetrain and the battery in the plug-in version of the Sorento is 395 pounds. Yeah. So it becomes about 4,500 pounds in total. And if you look at like a, a Grand Cherokee or a Wrangler, it's 800 pounds more. And yeah. the Wrangler and the Cher- Grand Cherokee have 25 miles of range. So that is in itself an accomplishment for for Kia to make such a big vehicle that has such a decent range and a range that I was able to access while I was driving it. And tell me, like, um, do you notice it being um, quiet, like loud, anything like that? Is there no, sound deadening or anything like that? that it was is, tough to tell when the motor was on. Like I would okay. feel vibration through the steering wheel sometimes and through the gas pedal. Uh, charging it, charging it takes a long time. If you're, if yeah. you're stuck at home, it's like 12 hours. That's because um, these things don't have DC fast charging support either. I mean, no, it, I mean, it, it makes no sense for, I guess 
if you're at 240, like that, right? if you're at 240 volts, you're on the, you get two hours and you're good. But a wall socket, just a regular wall socket is like six times that. But you were asking me about performance in this small engine. The area where I did notice it is on the Wait, highway. Wait, time out, time out. Let's talk about a second. This thing has a six speed? Yeah, it has a six speed. And the, the engine, the? the engine, the, the electric motor is between the transmission and the engine. So it's an old school hybrid. Um, but doesn't the regular, don't the other ones have like an eight speed? They might, but I don't think the eight speed application works with the yes, hybrid drivetrain. They have an eight speed in the other models. So interesting. Okay. So back to back to what I was saying about performance. Uh, on the highway, it's very slow, and not very slow in the sense that it's it's like dangerous, or you're going to be like, oh, this sucks. But I actually got into a drag race with a um, what would you call it? The, the little Toyota hatchback. Um, the Corolla? no, no, not the Corolla. The like the Echo, the whatever replaced the Echo. Yaris. Yeah, a Yaris. <laughs> with this a total maniac in a Yaris actually who ended up passing through the middle of all the cars in front of me. It was intensely crazy. I was trying to get out of this person's way. I could not get out of the Yaris's way at about <laughs> 75 miles an hour. There was just no acceleration at all. You really feel the weight and the lack of overall power at highway speeds. But okay. I don't think this is a vehicle you buy for performance. I don't think it matters. Most people are just going to set the cruise control like I did and let it do its thing. And I was really impressed with the fuel mileage when I did that. So Mm -hmm. on the highway, just like a straight highway run, I was getting 35 miles per gallon. But combined, I was getting between 30 and 35, including the city stuff. And and, and that was with the uh, electric motor completely, like not completely out of the picture, but with the battery-only driving range out of the picture on a couple of those trips because I didn't have time to plug it in in between. So... Usually you get these plug-in hybrids and their their mileage is not as good as the standard hybrid because they're heavier. And that's the yeah. case here. But the difference is very negligible. I think it's yeah. between one or two miles per gallon. And in the real world, that actually happened. And, and again, kudos to Kia for making that possible. I also want to talk um, about the cabin of this vehicle. I think it's a highlight, um, especially in the higher trim levels. The the Kia design language, I think, really is is – Swinging in full momentum in the when it comes to the cabin of their vehicles. Yeah, it am looks, I wrong? It looks pretty good. It has a decent infotainment system. It works well. There's a, a good amount of space. You still have a tiny third row. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, that's. I think that's not available on all on all versions of the Sorento. I don't know if your car had a, a third row. I think all of the Sorento hybrids have a third row because wow. they're SX and SX Premium or XS Plus. XS, sorry, SX Prestige. That's what it's called. Right. And it starts at forty five thousand one hundred ninety dollars, which is not cheap. It's actually like seven grand uh, more than the comparable trim from the gas only SX. Seven. Yeah, seven grand. But the federal tax credit is like sixty five hundred bucks, so it kind of mm. evens out in that weird math way that doesn't necessarily make sense, but they convince us it does. Um, the I think if you want the the version that I had, you're right around fifty. Okay. Wow. Um, that's, that's a little expensive. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I would recommend the plugin. I'm not saying I would not recommend the plugin. If you're looking for a hybrid with decent around town range on electric only, this is probably as good as it gets for a full size SUV, unless you're going to pay a lot of money for like an X5, which I believe has a longer range or larger range, at least in my experience in the real world. Than right. Sorrento does, but that's well, a huge the, that's a huge price difference. There's also the twin, right? Like there's a Santa Fe hybrid, yeah. which I think is 
identical. Yeah, right? exactly. The platform, so platform and powertrain ones. Now, now that we, the, the differences are the design, really. I think I like the Sorento design. Yeah, there's also the Ford Explorer hybrid, which is a plug-in. Oh, yeah. But yep. that is like a high-performance plug-in. It's not something you're really going to be getting amazing mileage with. I have yet to really see one of those on the road. I haven't been looking. I mean, I, Explorers are so common, it's hard to pull, tell them all apart. Yeah. Uh, so I don't necessarily – unless I walk by one when it's parked. But when I'm driving, it's like, oh, yet another Explorer, right? <laughs> no, but seriously, I must have had six pass me the last time I was driving. Um, it's interesting to see – um, the development of the of the plug-in hybrid technology. Um, and do you think that there's going to be a lot of um, adoption of these vehicles? Or do you think they're just going to be these expensive, um, compliance, essentially, vehicles? I don't think they're compliance vehicles. I think they make a lot of sense for people who live in an urban environment. If you uh, do most of your driving around town, like when I was, yeah. aside from my road trips, I did not need to put any gas in this vehicle. It it took so you end up of, saving gas. You end up saving gas, right? Yeah, you you end up, it ends up taking care of your commuting as long as your commuting is within like a thirty to forty mile radius per day. I think that's true of most people, and if you know they're able to plug in at work, then it extends it even more. Uh, so that's nice. I've always liked plug-in hybrids for that reason. If you're someone who's going to be taking a lot of road trips, though, just get the regular hybrid. You'll save a lot of money and you'll get better fuel mileage overall. Yeah, that would be my I, advice for the Sorento. I think that price difference is. Tough to, yeah, it's tough to. Well, that's not the difference between would, the hybrid and. It's the like, difference with the gas and the plug. Yeah, the plug, exactly, right? exactly. I would think the hybrid is is the better value. Yeah, but again, with the hybrid, you're going to have to be careful. Yeah, sorry, careful. You're going to be comfortable with a mid trim. You won't be able to get the luxuries. So Kia's kind of locked you out of that. I think if you go to oh, there's one more plug-in hybrid. No, is it a plug-in? The the Highlander, Sammy. No, that's a stand, that's a normal hybrid. Okay, so if you wanted a hybrid that has more luxury, you're going to have to look at something like the Highlander because they don't do the same trim split that that Kia's doing here. Right. Um, does Volvo count? I mean, Volvo counts, but it's a luxury vehicle, so I wouldn't put it in this category. But it's like less luxurious than. What about Lincoln? Doesn't Lincoln count? How is Lincoln not a luxury vehicle? <laughs> Volvo it's like it's less luxury, luxury than a BMW. Vehicle. It's like less, less luxurious than a BMW. But what vehicle are you talking about? You're talking about the Aviator, which is essentially the same pla- the same drivetrain as the Explorer, oh, right, which is yes. a high performance plug-in. So it's not really <laughs> okay, the yes. same thing. And it's also right. extremely heavy. Isn't like six thousand pounds? It's like some <laughs> yeah. huge number. <laughs> it is. It's insane. Um, okay, um, I want to continue our conversation today and discuss. Some listener emails. Um, people who sent us some emails over the past week uh, want us to discuss a couple of things that they found um, interesting. Garrett tells us that he's beginning to notice that drivers are using automatic emergency braking to stop when parking. Um, he as says, their default method. As their default method of, uh, of parking. Essentially, when people start reversing into a parking spot or, or I guess, pulling forward into a parking spot, they wait until their car stops for them, and then they just slam it into, into park and get out of the car. He used the example of he was actually in a parking lot loading some groceries, and like a Range Rover stopped inches from his front bumper while he was loading the car. And then the driver just hopped out and left. It didn't like adjust their parking or anything, or even acknowledge that he was there. And he wanted to know if if we've noticed this too, or if we think it's kind of a problem. I have to say, I think that this is the modern extension of touch parking. 
Where, like, you know there's a subgroup of people who they stop parking when they feel the impact with their bumper and the bumper of the vehicle behind them. And then they just go, parking accomplished, and put it in gear, or sort of put it in park, and leave, right? Like, don't, they don't pull forward, they don't make a gap, they don't leave a note, they just, they just kiss up to your bumper, and somehow that's socially acceptable. I think what Garrett's talking about is the electronic version of that. And I do wow. see it happen. I, I, I see people trying to parallel park in front of my house who fail in the craziest of ways, but they don't they don't correct the failure. It's like their car jams the brakes on. They're like frightened to do anything. They're like, wow, I must be really close to the edge. I better just get out <laughs> before I do something insane. Sammy, have you noticed this? I haven't. And, I, and in fact, I, I find it insane to believe that people can be that un, uh, like – unconfident when parking here's how Uh, close they were garrett could hear the beep of the parking sensor in the range (laughs) (laughs) um well i mean we all know that the part like some parking sensors really go like wild when you're when you're hitting it makes that flatlining noise yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) it's always exciting it's always code blue in the driver's seat when you get too close that's so weird we i always say that when to, to my to my wife oh the passenger needs help or the patient needs help. Sammy, is uh, your is your wife perhaps perhaps a medical professional? Yeah, she is. And All she's right. like, don't This don't, is how you try to relate me. to her, right? And she's like, yeah, don't so, even try. You you're missing twenty years of education. <laughs> exactly. She, she hates me for it. It's a bad joke. She hates it. But um you guys I I I mean I I am uh, a firm contributor to defensive driving, which is the idea that everyone on the road is is going to be doing something really dangerous and reckless and, and, and ridiculous. You need to be prepared for that. But if you're parked However, already... when it comes to parking, <laughs> I I believe people are a little bit more skilled than that no, and I don't should think have so. more confidence. I have seen so little parking by by feel where I um where I live and where I grew up, which was mostly suburbs with big old parking lots and stuff like that. So I didn't see as much um, but now that I'm I'm close to the city, I've you know done a lot of par- parallel parking and 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 been around parallel parking spots, and I've seen less of that. Um, I, I and people... I obviously feel that features like parking sensors and cameras go a long way to help support people when doing that, not like that really clumsy way of trying to park the car. But I think when people slow down in a parking lot, they kind of start getting distracted by the fact that they're near their destination or they're trying to find their destination or they're trying to find a parking spot. And they feel that since they're driving slowly, they don't have to be as careful anymore. Like everything's (laughs) fine now. It's almost like they're already parked in their mind and you can't defensively park, right? Like if you're already parked, if you're already parked and someone's coming towards you, your options are very limited. Anything about it. Exactly. But what I mean, to, I, I just wanted to say the mindset of how I approach my my fellow motorists, it it, it doesn't extend to when they're parking. I, I assume. Now I shouldn't say that because when I had my, when I had the the when I bought my FRS for the first year, it was constantly getting dinged up and, and hit in parking lots, mainly because of I that think offensive was, license plate you have. Yes, mainly because Not I a think doctor. it's small <laughs> and you cannot see it from any mirror or windows unless you've got cameras. So I think. That was a major problem, and I, I learned to you know, park it a, a little bit you know, in, in more visible spots. I have to say that the, the, the part of parking I like the least, the part that worries me the most, I guess is the best way to put it, is, is when people are leaving. <laughs> Sorry? Is leaving your car alone? No, well, there's that. I mean, I never do that. I always put a blanket around it or like, you know, a little light outside so that it doesn't feel too lonely. But no, it's, it's people. Like leave- me and my sh- shame, shack shame. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're, you're, shame, you're, shame shack. Shame shack. Um, for, it's people leaving their spaces. 
Whether I'm going down a side street or whether I'm in a parking lot, I hover one hand over the horn because people, they just go for it, right? Like, they love don't, this. I don't care. I'm getting out of here. Yeah, they're like, they're like, deal with it, bro. Sorry. We're going we're gonna to occupy the same space and time at the exact same point in time. It's horrible. And, like, that's, that's – it's just people just don't look. I think they don't look or they, as you said, they have a, a thin grasp on, the, on life. <laughs> I'm um, going for it now. Yeah. So one of the funniest things is my wife laughs at me when I'm driving, uh, when I'm parking, especially when we're when we're like grocery shopping or something like that, because my natural um, approach to a parking spot is I want to reverse in because it's easy to pull out afterwards. I think that's the best thing. But when you want to, like, I hate doing that for a grocery shopping, especially when you have so many groceries and you've got to find a figure, you got to like finagle your your cart between two cars yeah i don't do that for that reason it doesn't work and then you then you have to pull out you have to do that like nudging out sort of strategy and then if you've got a modern car that's constantly screaming at you with rear cross traffic alert yeah because there's carts and cars and people everywhere right (laughs) and yes it's like oh my goodness and totally so maybe that is why people just rely on the on the on the automatic emergency braking because it's just total chaos in the car. At but then one day you're going to get in and that sensor is going to be covered by snow or you're going to be driving yeah. a car that doesn't have it and it's a tragedy is going to take place. Yes, that is uh, true. So moving on to – we have another question that we want to get to just before we finish things up this week and that's from Tim. And he asks us, why has Dodge stopped producing a compact SUV? He says they never gave the Journey a second generation and I don't think that they were really good cars but they seem to sell a lot of them, especially to Dodge fanboys. Uh, they could even help save the Chrysler band by rebrand by rebranding a new journey as the Chrysler Aspen or something. He wanted to know what we thought about that. Sammy, what do you think? The Dodge Journey is one of the most underwhelming vehicles I have ever driven and manages to sell a surprising amount every time I pay attention to the sales. Figures, and right? also, like I would say rental fleets are 95% composed of Dodge Journeys. Right. Dodge Journeys and the remainder is Chrysler 300s. Yes. If you ever needed a cheap vehicle that you didn't really mind how reliable it was or how, you know, how it got or fuel efficient or anything like that, you need a big vehicle. It is like the, it is like a disposable vehicle on used car lots. They look the same from whatever year they've ever been in. They have the same power, the same technology. The cabin, I think, got slightly updated, but there's still plastic fantastic in there. It is the funniest thing to think about that a second generation product could be more successful than that when it doesn't need to be, right? And, and like, also, like, the, the the journey is three row, right? It can be, yeah. So the Kia, I want to say, remember when Kia, what was the name of the little Kia? My neighbor has Rondo. One. The Kia Rondo. My neighbor has one of these. They sold them in Canada for a few years longer than they did in the United States. That was also a three row, right? Yep. And it was roughly the same size, maybe a bit smaller. And there was also the Mazda um, Mazda 5, Five. Yeah. which was a three-row compact. Again, a little bit smaller than the Journey, but the same kind of concept. And of those three vehicles, only the Journey survived. Like, that was the one. I think it's because Dodge focused so much on price, like they did yeah. with the Caravan. They kept it cheap the whole time. They got people into the Dodge world and then hoped that they would later on buy a question mark something else. Who knows? Because Dodge doesn't really sell vehicles anymore. Uh, There's a Durango, I guess, if you want to make a giant leap. But there's another uh, Dodge SUV that we're forgetting about, and that's the Nitro. Wow. Remember the Nitro? That's a deep cut, man. How'd you you pull that out of the shade? There's also the... the Caliber. Yeah, the Caliber. I saw a Caliber SRT4 last week. 
So the good for you. Yeah, you, put it, you wrote it down in your journal. You had to remind me. I wrote it in my dream journal. Yeah, but um, so, so Dodge d- used the, to have a journey, whole family. The journey like exists from the. Do you think the journey exists from that era? Yeah, I think so. I think That's that the nitro happen? and the caliber and the journey all overlap. At least in my mind, they do. And then now the Dodge only has the Durango, and that's it. I think that Dodge is a weird brand that no one knows yeah. what to do with. And I think that's probably why they didn't give a second-generation journey, Tim. I think that Dodge is trying to figure out if they're going to be a performance company. And if so, what does that mean for the Durango, which is kind of an outlier for them? Uh, the Charger, I think, is probably done. Uh, they're going to be moving to a new platform for the Challenger. They're going to be yep. trying to do this electric muscle car thing. It's cloudy and confusing and unpredictable in terms of a future for Dodge. I don't know what's going to happen. Then again, I would have thought Chrysler would have died quite a long time ago, and yet it gets a Pacifica. Um, I don't think it would get an Aspen. Maybe that's a smaller battery-powered crossover is in the cards for Chrysler. I could see that before Dodge, just because I think Chrysler would try to charge more money for it, and they might be able to pull it off. But predicting Stellantis is so difficult. Yes. But it is interesting because I think we used to think that um, that this company, FCA or Solantis, could just sell different takes on the same platform powertrain, anything like this. As we saw with the 300C and the Dodge Charger and then the closely related Challenger. Um, and then we had, you know, the the um, – I think that's it, actually, right now that that comes to modern memory. But you could you feasibly believe that you can just pull a, a GM and just rebadge everything with a different, a slightly different exterior, and yeah. say it's and that, the same thing. And that failed a bunch of times for Chrysler, especially. Yeah. So I don't think they're going to be taking that approach going forward. It does obviously make things more affordable for them, but I think they're starting to realize that their cash cows are their Jeep and Ram brands. They sell a ton of vehicles in both in both brands. And I think as a result, Chrysler and Dodge are actually being kind of kind of left behind. And we're stuck with a with a generationally old vehicle, like an unquestionably old vehicle like the like the Journey. Um, that gets no new updates, even though it was fairly successful in terms of sales. Um, and we don't like, I don't think there's going to be another model. Uh, this is a weird flash for them that, that might not repeat itself. And, you know, there, there are very few full, what's, what's the word I want to use? Full lineup car companies left in the world. I would say General Motors is maybe the closest. They don't have any cars. They do have they do have some cars right now, but like you know the spark like in their Cadillacs, you mean? Or no, what? oh, I, I, you mean like spark? Yeah, yeah, like so that, that covers the entry level all the way up to the top. Um, Toyota too. Yeah, Toyota is Toyota is and there. Honda. Toyota, well, Honda doesn't have a small car anymore, do they? Yeah, they don't have a fit anymore. Yeah, and and GM and they're making a new HRV. Did you hear that specific for the North American market? Yeah, and and the the Spark is about to leave Chevrolet. So once that happens, yeah. Chevrolet won't have anything small because I don't think they have the Sonic either, and we know they don't have the Cruise. So you know these, these companies are disappearing, and you look at Chrysler and Dodge, and their their lineup is so unbalanced just in terms of like only focusing on certain segments, and that's kind of become the new norm. As but as that's crossovers, the hottest, those are the hottest segments, except for Dodge, which only has one yeah. SUV. So. Yeah. You know, and and Chrysler has a minivan. Yeah, so. I don't imagine. Like, I don't know how Chrysler maintains its its brand. Right? Is it just for heritage? I guess I would have thought that they would have transitioned to EV only a long time ago, but it's clearly don't necessarily have the funds to do that, and mm-hmm. it's kind of just a ghost brand. It's hanging around. I agree. Wild. 
So, Sammy, if other people who are listeners and who have questions want to get in touch with us, how can they do that? Oh, it's so easy, Ben. Are you really asking me this? I am asking you. Well, let me just walk you through the steps, Ben. You just go to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, and you click on the contact button, and you fill out the con- fill out the form, and you're done. Like, that's it. That's all you got to do. That's what these guys did. Well, um, additionally, if you want to get in touch with us um, a little bit more personally, you can email us the old-fashioned way. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, or you can reach out to us on social media. Ben is on Instagram. You can find him at HuntingBenjamin, right? Yes. That's correct. And you can find me at... At Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. And if you want to check out old episodes or subscribe to us on one of the many different podcatcher services that we're on, I mean, we're on Amazon, we're on Apple, we're on Google, we're on Spotify, we are on CastBox, we are on Stitcher, we are everywhere. You can do that either by searching on your respective podcatcher or you can go to uh, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. There is a subscribe button there. You can listen to past episodes directly from the site. Um, You can also, if you feel like doing it, leave us a comment or a rating or anything at all on the podcasting services that you use if they have that capability. That always helps get us out in front of other people and kind of expand our audience, and we would appreciate it. Sammy, what are we going to be talking about next week? Ben, I'm under, like, two embargoes, so I need to to finesse how I'm going to talk about whatever I'm going to be talking about next week. It's either going to be the new Range Rover or the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe that we mentioned um, earlier in comparison to the Sorento. So I'll need to sort this out and see what I can do. I don't have anything nearly as fancy, but I will be offering my thoughts on the Lexus NX Hybrid, something that Sammy had talked about um, earlier this year. I'm just going to, you know, quickly summarize my experiences with it. Very cool. And don't forget, uh, thank you to the guys who contributed to our Ko-Fi. And if you want to do that, just go to ko-fi.com slash unnamed automotive podcast. We really appreciate it. And we can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.